Hello, my name is Steve D'Agostino, and my co-host Anne Fernald and I welcome you to the Twice Over podcast, because to teach is to learn twice over. In this episode, A Productive Struggle, we are joined by Alessio Moldavan, Assistant Professor of Mathematics Education, Associate Chair in the Division of Curriculum and Teaching, and the Program Director of the MST in Adolescence Mathematics in the Graduate School of Education at Fordham University who shares her thoughts about the changing nature of mathematics instruction. Welcome, Alicia. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Well, thank you for the opportunity. This is great. Tell us a little bit about how your journey to becoming a professor of math education. As a student, math was definitely a struggle for me. It was something that although, you know, I enjoyed participating in it and trying to problem solve and work up all these different strategies, it wasn't easy. And so I thought, you know, teaching and helping to prepare teachers to work with students who saw math as a struggle would be a great opportunity because it gives teachers um, a way to learn how students learn differently about things, but also the importance of their role and being that main source of confidence builder for their students. That's so interesting. It's unusual to go into a field because it was hard for you. We often gravitate to things because we're great at them. When I was little, I would always go home and just be like, how am I supposed to learn this? And so I'd create creative different opportunities to like little games or different flashcards or just anything. And I thought this is really helpful for me because I am getting engaged and interested in learning the material through fun and in engaging ways. So like hands-on activities. And I was developing all of these mini activities myself. And of course I'd share it with my sister who could really care less <laughs> and my <laughs> dolls, you know, and I'm teaching my Barbies and whatever it might be. And I thought, you know, I am finding passion in trying to not only explore my own light bulb moments, but look for other people's light bulb moments and find ways in which I can really try to provide opportunities for students so that they can get access and encouragement and opportunities in mathematics and just STEM fields in general. Did you teach in the K through 12 classroom before you came to the Graduate School of Education? Can you tell us a little bit about that? I was a high school math teacher at a magnet school for science and technology. I worked with ninth and 10th graders. And I loved that age range because they're moving into a high school setting and they're still finding themselves. And also they're sparking interest in finding ways that they can really explore STEM fields. This particular lens at, at the school that I was working at and really emphasized STEM and finding ways to integrate math throughout other subjects and vice versa. So I thought that that was a, a great opportunity for my students. And knowing that experience, I was like, you know, I want to get a master's degree so I can work with teachers and helping them find ways in which they can work with students in STEM fields or whatever fields that they might be of interest. I also worked over at Georgia State University, where I um, helped craft different elementary school STEM projects and and worked with the Saturday school, ultimately finding ways to engage them in STEM curriculum that I was developing. A lot of my teaching is with traditional age undergraduates, and I'm teaching young adults, but you're teaching people who might be your age or even older than you, right? It's a totally different developmental stage. So can you talk a little bit about what translates from K-12 pedagogy into what Steve sometimes calls andragogy, right? I mean, (laughs) teaching actual grownups, right? We're not teaching, you know, children. We're teaching, you know, people who are your peers. 
Yeah, and I think the biggest thing is just providing students at Fordham, whoever I'm working with, opportunities to see the translation for math in K-12 settings to college settings and getting them excited in the material. So when we think of math education in K-12, we're looking at studies in like algebra, geometry, number and operations, um, measurement, data analysis, statistics, a whole bunch of different things. And these topics serve as like a sneak peek in K-12 settings for students in hopes that they can get inspired and interested to continue their pursuits in these topics. So then when we get to a college setting, it's diving deeper into the content and really looking at the theory and the history and the fundamental principles behind some of these math subjects. And so um, in working with pre-service teachers who are seeking certification in really K-12 settings. So I look at, I work with both elementary school level settings as well as secondary settings. My main goal is trying to find ways in which I can help them explore the math, get excited about the math, understand it from a foundational perspective with principles, and then also find ways that now we can embed some of the psychology of students learning and what are the just general effective teaching strategies that can be used in the classroom to teach the content. So math education is very complex, and that's why I really enjoy it because you're looking at not only the content, but ways in which you can teach the content. And then outside of that, just support students as they're developing in a K-12 setting. So I know as a, a poor math student myself and having a peak in sixth grade in terms of my arithmetic you know, numeracy, I'm wondering if there are pre-service or in-service early childhood teachers who are, if not math phobic, then question their ability to teach mathematics to young children? And is that something you've run into and, and how do you handle those kinds of learners? Definitely in early childhood and childhood um, pre-service teacher education, we see a lot of teachers coming in that are excited to teach, but they have that math anxiety. And I always tell them, you know, I'm hoping that I get you more confident in the skills that you can do. And even if you might not know the content you can at least know what resources can I turn to? What are some problem solving strategies that I can leave the class with that then can transpire to other different opportunities? But yes, I, I think they look at their transcript and they're like, oh my gosh, or look at their program sequence and say, I have to take an elementary math methods course. What am I supposed to do? And they get nervous because they're like, I haven't done you know, math in years or my math experiences weren't all that great. And the first few activities I do is just have them write about their experiences in math. Because I think when they write about it, they can see, ooh, I was in an opportunity that I, I didn't really blossom in math because I had teachers that might've taken on this perspective. Or I really blossomed in math because I had teachers that were excited to help me grow. And looking at all of that can really help them take a, a moment to reflect on their own experiences and then think, how do I want to support my students in the classroom? So I'm thinking that math, certainly in the early grades, seems to have math instruction seems to have changed a lot, you know, in the 50 years since I was in kindergarten, you know, rec and recs and tens frames and other kinds of manipulatives. So is this something that you, these kinds of approaches is that part of the program of, of setting teachers at ease who are 
recalling their experiences as learners, not knowing about these new tools and methodologies? Yes. And what's really interesting is when you read about the experiences that, you know, these students had growing up in their math courses, they're, although they have some shared similarities, you also see the vast differences in it and how some students never had hands-on opportunities to work with the content. And so when they come to these classes, they're like, wow, these 10 frames, they really help me understand how I can build off of a number 10 or just look at it and understand carnality or just any of these types of main ideas. So some of them might have forgotten that they've had these experiences or they themselves didn't really have that access to be able to learn the math conceptually. It was just very procedural based. Like I want you to have this memorized and be able just to produce and spit out, you know, the facts versus really taking a step back to say, okay, what can we do if we manipulate this? What might have that effect in the long run with this? And just have opportunities to explore and experiment with the math. Like a lot of people, I experienced math class as almost like a math club. And then if I didn't have an intuitive grasp of of mathematical concepts or arithmetic ways of thinking, I I couldn't, I I felt like I could never catch up that I just natively was not a math person. And I think the idea that there are math people is really persistent. Um, I'm I'm wondering if you, if you still encounter that with, with, you know, teachers and students in, in your work. I think there's definitely people that identify as mathematicians and doers of mathematics, but I like to also push back and challenge that we all are using math in different ways. And it might not be a way that is a Western perspective of let me do the calculus experiments or, you know, do the calculus equations right now. But whether you're an artist, you're thinking about sequencing, organizing, how are you going to maybe use patterns, designs, and there's a lot of geometry involved with that. If you are a cook, you're thinking about, you know, ways in which you can uh, use different ingredients and the different ratios and proportions in relation to each other and what that effect has. So there's so much mathematics in everyday life, but I think that's the biggest thing is trying to help students see the relevance of their interactions with math and see that they too are doers of math math, even if they don't necessarily identify as a mathematician. Speaking of patterns and artists, you have some forthcoming research on South African beadwork. Yes. Can you talk about that? I'm obsessed with that and develop beadwork. It's so incredibly gorgeous. And it's really interestingly geometric because it incorporates both right angles and curves. And so it's a really complex kind of pattern. So that we've now reached the limit of my ability to talk about it. So can you say a little bit about your your research and maybe how that informs your thinking about how we're all doing math, even if we don't maybe recognize that we are? I actually had an opportunity as part of my doctoral program to go abroad. And this is something that I would always advocate for all students is to take opportunities to go abroad, see the world and see how people are interacting with different content in different ways. But this particular experience allowed me to go to South Africa and I um, grouped up with some colleagues and studied and stayed with um, some people over in the Indabeli village. And it was a really great opportunity for me to see how, how are these people talking about things and seeing math 
Do they identify as mathematicians? And of course they, they don't. They're like, what are you talking about? I'm not using all these crazy equations and you know, being able to solve all these complex problems, but yet they're solving some problems that I wouldn't even know how to do. So, I mean, they're thinking about ways in which I can weave certain things. What are some patterns within basket weaving or um, jewelry design that they have to really think through lots of steps, not just, okay, what's the next color I need to do? If you're trying to transpose different geometric shapes and think about symmetry and find ways in which I need to translate an object or reflect it across this line, they're having to think through not only counts, but different colors. And so I found that to be fascinating in working with and studying alongside some colleagues with Endebelli um, tri members. And so one thing that I thought too, is when we're talking about geometry in the classroom, it's not just about shapes and, okay, let's put a coordinate plane up there and we want to take this triangle and, and translate it across the, the y-axis. But like if we can actually look at artifacts and be able to transpose a coordinate plane onto the artifact, then we can study ways in which we can kind of make you know, our coordinates come, come to life and find ways in which we have to really be strategic where if we want this on the other side of the particular strip design, then we have to think through what that looks like. Can you talk a little bit more about this idea of non-Western ways of using mathematics? And if, if those ways of thinking should be integrated into our teaching and learning practices? I definitely think Western, a Western view of mathematics is only one perspective. And it's important for our students to have opportunities to look at different types of ways of interpreting math and using math. And that's part of what ethnomathematics is about in some of my research. It's the cultural aspect of mathematics and finding ways to really hone in on indigenous cultures and seeing ways in which that they use and interact with math. Maybe not looking at it through a lens of being a mathematician, but they are an artist and they're engaging in mathematical practices. Um, so I think that's what's important is for our students to not only see that math is just this Western perspective. It happens to be a predominant lens in which we look at, but I think that we need to refocus ourselves and really look at the ways in which indigenous cultures are interacting with mathematics and finding ways to allow that mathematics to bridge to this idea of the importance for cultural mathematics. And now in today's society um, and a lot of the work that I'm doing, I'm really trying to look at ways to make math culturally relevant for students. Ways to excite them would be looking at indigenous cultures, other cultures, maybe their own culture. Maybe they don't have a Western perspective and they're able to turn to their own artifacts in their house and bring those in to talk about the mathematics and ways in which that they see geometry in those artifacts that mean something to them versus just a coordinate plane with some shapes thrown on it. And so I think if we can help students see that the math is relevant to them and that it's interesting and it allows us to not only appreciate our own cultural backgrounds, but other people's cultural backgrounds, Math is doing more than just providing ways to problem solve. It's also being an avenue for us to explore and speak to other cultures. Can you talk a little bit more about what ethnomathematics is? Really, ethnomathematics is just identifying the cultural aspects of using math. 
And so it is um, really honing in on indigenous cultures and the non-Western perspective of mathematics and really having those stories shine through so we can see math through a different lens and not just have it always speak to this Westernized perspective. If we talk about mathematics as a universal language, there may be an insistence on the Western notation as if it's universal. Can you say a little bit more about how ethnomathematics helps you kind of unravel that a little bit? Yeah, and I think this idea of math being universal because of their shared ideas of numbers or symbols or anything, it allows us to speak one language, but it doesn't allow us to see math through other different perspectives. And I think that's a lost aspect that if we are going to provide access and opportunities for us to learn about ways in which math is being used, if it's viewed as universal, it's going to be excluding some people because those that don't interact with that particular language will not see themselves as being able to participate in it. When in fact, they really are doing math and everyday practices. And that's part of what um, I think this discourse around, oh, I don't like math. I can never do math. I try to break that because everyone's doing math. You're just doing it in your own way, or you're looking at math through your indigenous culture and the ways in which your upbringing brought that through the forefront, or you're looking at it in the way that your work brings that to light. I mean, there's math in everything you do. And I think that that should be the language is that we are all looking at math versus saying that it's universal in terms of being able to all speak the same thing. We need to capitalize on the fact that everyone's bringing their own lens to it. And that's what makes it really rich. What my goal is in preparing the next generation of teachers is to help them see that math is just not about numbers and the special language that they have to try to interpret themselves and then help others understand. But it's really just a way of looking at how they engage in practices in society, helping teachers see that they are mathematicians themselves. And so they can now set that mindset and that positive mindset for their own students to engage in that. And that's a big part of effective pedagogy. When I think about, you know, what are the skills that teachers need to be sharing with their students? And ultimately, I mean, they need to be providing opportunities for students to engage in that productive struggle when they do come across issues with trying to think, what is the best strategy? Allowing teachers to know that students are on this journey and that they might not be there yet, but you still need to help give them the guidance and the skill set to be able to achieve their academic pursuits. And the other thing is, is making sure that teachers really see that all students are not only capable of struggle, but they are worthy of it. And so trying to find ways in which to really hone in on productive struggle allows teachers to see that students are developing skill sets that they can communicate through their problem solving in the moment, but then also transfer this to other practices. Can you talk a little bit more about what productive struggle is? Productive struggle, you know, it's when you're in that middle of the problem and you're like, man, I just don't know what to do next. So students oftentimes shut down. Instead of doing that as a teacher, we need to find ways in which we can ask students questions. And it's not just questions and I'm like, okay, well, what do you think is the next step? But being a strategic in their questioning that allows students to build confidence. So as a teacher saying, all right, I know you have this skill set here. So let's just start looking at this problem. What are some things you notice about this problem? And then the student can capitalize on, oh, well, I see this. Okay, that's great. That's a great first observation. Now, what do you think we need to do as our next step? And that way the student is guiding the process 
through problem solving and seeing that I don't need a teacher to ultimately give me the, the reins to, to try to solve this problem. I can ask these questions of myself. What is the first step that I should do? And by you know, providing opportunities for students, you're actually empowering them to see that they have the skill set and control of their learning. The first thing you said when you described productive struggle was students shutting down. We know there's a struggle that's unproductive or that's unhelpful. And one manifestation of that might be shutting down. Are there other ways that when we look at our students who are struggling, we might think about like, this person is struggling in a way that's of benefit to their learning. This kind of struggle, not this person, but let's say this kind of struggle, this way of struggling is not gonna help this person's learning. How do you help teachers see that? And how do you help students perceive the difference between those two states? It's a very challenging act to balance because there's not an easy answer. You have to know your students. And that's the first thing is making sure that you take the time to get to know your students. What are their prior knowledge capabilities that they're coming in with, that skill set? What do they see in themselves? Do they see themselves as having confidence to try to work through the problem? Or do they see themselves and saying, oh, I don't know if I can even engage in this. I'm just going to step back. So you almost have to know the student before you even know and consider any of the mathematics that they're bringing. And I think that's right. the important thing is telling teachers, you have to make the time to really get to know your students. And then from that point, it's just, a, a it is a dance and trying to find ways in which you can ask questions, but that's the teacher's role is asking productive questions that allow students to see, this is a challenge, it's okay. And from my perspective, you know, if math is a challenge, which it has been for me in the past, I can say I was literally in your shoes. And there might have been an opportunity where I said, you know, oh, I'm just going to give up. But I ended up pushing forward through this. And these are some skills that I used. And that way, now as a teacher, I'm hoping to instill these with you to give you the guidance to move forward. What does it look like when you're doing math? Is it about the answer or are there productive ways of being wrong? Definitely the latter. Productive ways to being wrong and helping to support one another work through that problem-solving process. I think new math, it can get frustrating for some that were brought up and like there must be one way. There's only one way to multiply. Why do we have all these different ways to multiply or adding? You know, like just line things up and just go down and you know why are we trying to introduce these different ways these different solutions why did they change the x to a dot like what's that all about and that's part of it but the idea behind all of this is really the new math is saying that there's lots of different ways to approach a problem and that the various solution strategies that accompany this is what we want students to walk away with is this idea that there's not just one solution and that their solution as long and their strategy that gets to that solution is very important and, and should be looked at and talked about and critiqued with colleagues. It's not just this is the one way because there's multiple ways. And even when we're thinking about developing effective tasks, we have to think about differentiation and providing, I always tell my teachers, you need to provide tasks that have a low floor and a high ceiling. And so they have multiple entry points for students to come and engage with the task. So I think this, what you're saying has implications for assessment, evaluation, and grading then. Is that, is that right? Yes. And so you shouldn't just provide feedback on if it's right or wrong, but you should be really unpacking the strategy that the student is looking at and trying to find ways to say, okay, 
you're going on this right track, but maybe you're finding a different way of approaching this problem. Let's see, can we all see if this is an effective problem solving solution that will get us to an answer? If not, then maybe we can unpack some misconceptions that we're bringing forward and kind of work together as a collaborative unit to try to get to an appropriate answer. Maybe not the right answer, but a, a strategy that we can get to, uh, to really unpack that problem. Do you run into resistance in, in this project? How do you respond to the idea that the kind of math you're advocating is not valid? Yeah, definitely there's a lot of pushback um, in the research as well as just looking at the standards and what's prioritized. You don't see standards for New York or other states saying, we need to learn about ways in which other cultures use math, the history of math or anything. It's always about, let's just get you know, these particular standards in place in order to make, you know, have success on the, the end of course test or something of that nature. And so there's so little time within curriculum to say, okay, let's explore all these different avenues. But I think that the important thing is, is if you can be creative and innovative with the ways in which you are introducing content or exploring its applications is how we can incorporate some of the cultural mathematical connections that are needed in order to keep students engaged in the math. Otherwise, they're going to say, I don't see myself doing this, interacting with it, or doing anything of this math in the future. Where do I use this math? Where does it come into play? And then they start to push themselves away from looking at it. Or they might see there's no point in trying to continue with it because it's only made for a select group of people. And so if we can open up the doors to saying math is very complex and there's all these different perspectives that are coming into play, then we can provide more opportunities for students to get engaged in STEM, STEAM, STREAM, whatever it might be, um, but finding ways that they can really start to see those opportunities for them. I think this new perspective and in, in the revise of the standards is looking at the next generation standards. And I'm hopeful that maybe people can start advocating more within those standards to say that we need to bring in student voice more into the content so they can see the relevance in what they're learning and make it more meaningful for them. So do the, do the professional and, you know, academic, I'm thinking like the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics, yep. How, how are they figuring into this conversation about reconceptualizing math and how it's taught? There's a big part of uh, the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics, as well as the Association of Mathematics Teacher Educators, that are really prioritizing culture in the mathematics. But I think what we always run into issues is it's great in theory, but when we put it into practice, how does that come about? And how do school systems pick that up? Because they know that they are under the gun for producing certain score of results on their tests. And those tests might not say, talk about a way a, a, an indigenous culture speaks or uses math. But I think that that's what we need to start advocating more for because that's gonna bring in the excitement and the interest if students are able to see the application aspect, not just in paper form of performing on an actual problem, but being able to talk about mathematics with other people, recognize mathematics in their culture, and then appreciate how mathematics is being used in other cultures. Should I be calling it maths? Because I know that in, in other countries, they call it maths and not math. They do call it maths in other countries. <laughs> but let's just say, I, I kind of like that idea because it's recognizing the complexity of different types of maths. So maybe that is the better way of looking at it. I wonder if you can talk about kind of where play fits in 
in the university setting, because it's easy for us to recognize and know and remember that play has a role, especially in early grades. We know that effective early grade teaching involves a lot of play. We also know that if a lot of early grade teaching is a lot of worksheets and drills still. And I know that's an ongoing live debate, but for Fordham, when you think about our students who are 18 and up by and large, what's play look like for us as learners? I think play is using the technology resources that are available to interact and see the mathematics in action. So I, I definitely an elementary level, you can bring out all the manipulatives in the world and start playing and using the different fairs to create different patterns or whatever it might be, counting. And when you get to a high school setting, now you need to see, okay, how am I supposed to really look at a parabola and where is this going and how am I going to why is this even important, this line of trajectory? And so if we can use technology, there's a lot of great resources that are out there. And the simulations, what's great about it is that you can plug things in and automatically see what's happening. Back in the olden day, you might have to try to manipulate things and then run the whole equation and figure out, okay, now what's the output? Now you can kind of just easily with a, a slider, manipulate some of the variables and quickly see, okay, if I manipulate this variable, what does that mean for this equation? That was the amazing thing when we watched Hidden Figures, right? Is thinking about like, she didn't have a simulation. She's just doing some math and thinking about it in the abstract. And it's going to have some real-time implications for some men in a little box. Definitely. And that's what makes it exciting too, is seeing the output of that. Like, I mean, you hope it's a good output, but in general, I think we need students to see that math is a lot more than just manipulating numbers and hoping that this is the result, like what makes sense of it. But if you see it in action, then you can say, okay, now I'll always remember if I manipulate this variable, what does that do for this equation? And technology is, is a huge advancement for STEM fields. And I'm even teaching right now a course on computational thinking for doctoral students over in GSE. And it's just a, a great opportunity to look at ways you can use computational thinking through a plugged in perspective of computer science, but you can also use it from an unplugged perspective and how we can look at play and maybe not have the the computers right there and have the programming language to see what's the coming out of these um, ideas within that we're exploring. But we're still building on all of the ideas of computational thinking, debugging something, finding algorithms, abstract ideas, making pattern recognitions, all of these ideas that are coming out because of the use of technology, whether it's directly with computer science or maybe in an unplugged form. Well, I think a lot of universities and, and it also streamlines into high school settings and now even elementary school settings are finding ways to use big data sets to really help bring in the mathematics, to connect it and show we have so much stats and our society relies on stats, but how can we read the statistics that we're looking at and really use it to inform ideally justice oriented practices and works in order to make sure that what we're doing and analyzing the data is going to result in having us look at something from a different lens that's productive. Since we've been talking so much about you as a practitioner, you as a teacher, I wanna give you an opportunity to share with us a teacher who's shaped you. 
I still have vivid memories of being in my fourth grade class taught by Miss Kehoe in New York. This was a wonderful teacher. She inspired me to be a teacher because of her hands-on and interesting dynamic of teaching. And so we role-played different events and people in history. We went outside to conduct science experiments. We acted out readings and we played with numbers and engaged in problem solving, brain teasers and games. And I just felt like I would take all of this fun ways of looking at content and bring it home and still keep it going. I'd create my own different things to try to explore new ideas, share it with my sister, anything of that nature. And I knew, like I said earlier, that I loved exploring my own light bulb moments and also those of others. And so she was the source of inspiration. And I knew since fourth grade that I always wanted to be a teacher. And like I said earlier, math is challenging for me and I have to work at it. And I like creating ways to help learn the material. And she really helped with that by finding ways to use graphic organizers or different math games, the brain teasers, anything just to keep math exciting. And so I knew I wanted to support and be a cheerleader for students like that in the classroom who were like me that might've been struggling at times to engage with the math. And I felt that I could turn to Ms. Kehoe to be that source of inspiration. Well, and this is why I think math ed as a field needs to be valued and deemed important to support teachers for both today's teachers and tomorrow's teachers. Thanks so much for your time. Well, thank you. Twice Over Podcast is available on SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Spotify, with new episodes appearing twice each week. For host and guest bios and show notes, please visit our website, twiceoverpodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twiceover1 or email us at twiceoverpodcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening.